when somebody says, oh, I don't do politics, but you're like, politics is around you all day. Can you give us a, a clear example of how politics, the administration plays a part in your life just on a regular day? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you don't have to do politics, but politics is gonna do you, honey. I mean, <laughs> politics is creating your reality. Um, it, it affects what you buy, how much those things cost you, oh. whether they are given to you for free or whether you pay exorbitant amounts for them, whether the people who made them, delivered them, packaged them to you are able to afford food for their children or not. Um, really basic things, whether or not you have access to fresh food and fresh vegetables and fresh fruits, whether you, how much plane tickets cost, like everyone out here trying to be travel wow. boo, like <laughs> those are all highly, highly regulated industries, right? And so there's all sorts of ways. I mean, give me someone and describe their day and I could probably list off 25 different ways that they interacted with a state, local or federal government. How was it, seeing Biden then and now seeing him as the president? Having worked for him as his son passed, um, mm. having worked for him as the only example I think I've ever seen of watching a then 70 something white man joyfully work for a black man 30 years younger than him or 20 years younger than him and like always take a second seat. He inspires such profound loyalty and um, shows such extraordinary humanity and grace that as a individual and, and people can and should disagree with their president, people can and should question and critique right. their president, but on a human level, like he's such an extraordinary human being and um, I have real affection for him as a human. Mm -hmm. Even in private, he would defend the president. I remember we were at a meeting and someone came in and was trying to like get him on their side against President Obama. And he was like, uh-uh, like not here. Never, not me, mm. never, ever talk about him like that in front of me. And I, I just, there are just precious few examples that we have in this country that is plagued by racism, where you watched a man that wanted to be president watch have see a black man again twenty years his junior or whatever their age gap is have the job he wants and be like that's my dude that's my dog mm -hmm. like I have his back in private and in public and I think that's why black voters in South Carolina and across the South and across the country particularly if you're over fifty none of us have seen anything like that. We don't have, I, anyone can point, tell me another example. And I think that's why he inspires such loyalty and gets such high support amongst black voters because we're just like that dude, who else would have worked for Barack Obama and been like, no, no, no I'm good, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Like I'll be number two, look at this, this is history. Right. And been so happy about it. I don't know. What's interesting to me about Joe Biden also is that he's so much smarter than you think he is, which I realize seems nuts. But it's like he doesn't care about whether or not, you know, he's smarter than you. Mm. You know, it's just not what animates him as a person. He cares if you're comfortable, if you're happy. Do you feel like loved and appreciated and welcomed? He's like a host in that regard. Um, and the intellectual stuff doesn't matter to him as much, but he is so smart and has such um, sophisticated knowledge and detailed knowledge of sort of everything that comes across his plate. That was always really startling to me. It's like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, these dudes are known as being these intellectual powerhouses and they lead with that and it's a big part of their personality and how they show up in the world. And I'd say Joe Biden is like on that level of intellectual heft, but just isn't, it's not where his value system is. Be it politics, social justice, media, cultural impact. Cultural impact. You are going to find this powerhouse, Carrie Twig. Woo! Hi. Hey, 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 Carrie. Thank you for having me. I'm oh, so happy to be here. So I'm to see you. so happy to see you again. It's been too long. We still have so much to catch up about. I just want to give a, a refresher to everybody. 
you have been doing a lot of work for a very long time. Okay. So we're also going to talk, how do you take care of yourself in the midst of really tackling so many things you previously worked with the Obama administration, which sounds exhausting to be honest. (laughs) It was. was. (laughs) And then when you co-founded in recent years, your company culture house, which is so amazing, but so much hard work. And I really want you to get transparent about it because it's hard. Yeah. Starting a business, especially in a sketchy industry, Mm -hmm. media, entertainment world, Mm -hmm. you got to watch your back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to definitely talk about all of it. Some of the lessons, some of the mistakes that you've made along the way. And where do you envision your company going? What's next for also you personally? Okay. Okay. So since the last time I saw you, For MTV and Hot 97, it's many years ago. We had heavy conversations about the state of the country, where things were, how society was, social justice, politics, the intersection behind it all, right? So in your opinion, what's been the biggest change in the country? Be it politics, be it cultural, what would you say has changed since we last saw each other, if anything at all? Wow, that's a big question. You know, I think, so when we last saw each other, this was, it was post-Trump, but pre-pandemic. Is that yes. right? Correct. Yes. Right? I think right, no, be- at the, right before Trump. It's not post. Right before Trump. Was yes. it? No, no, was no, it no, 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 no I think a couple different things. I think one, you know, we anyone who's been doing this work pre-Trump, pre-pandemic has run into a lot of people who are like, doesn't matter to me who the president is, doesn't affect my life. Doesn't matter to me what government does, government doesn't affect my life. We would hear that over and over and over again. And I think the, the experience of the pandemic and the experience of the Trump administration really drove home how much of a mythology that is, how untrue that is, mm. right? Your government can influence your day-to-day life very, very easily, very, very quickly. The reality is that America has historically been so stable that you don't feel the ways that you interact with the government every day. But we are all constantly interacting with our policies and our legislation every moment of the day, from what streets we drive on, whether or not we take public transportation, how we drive our car, how fast you drive that car, where you go to school, where you work, where you get paid, what rights you have. (laughs) Right. Right. All of these are our interactions with our civic life. Mm. And I think those two experiences really shifted in the public consciousness, Mm -hmm. how much closer they are and how much more subjected they are to the the whims or Mm. the wisdom of our civic life. Um, I think that's really different from the country in 2016, 2017, 2018. When somebody says, oh, I don't do politics, but you're like, politics is around you all day. Can you give us a a clear example of how politics, the administration plays a part in your life just on a regular day? Yeah. I mean, it's like you don't have to do politics, but politics is going to do you, honey. I mean, (laughs) politics is creating your reality. Um, It it affects what you buy, how much those things cost you, whether they are given to you for free or whether you pay exorbitant amounts for them, whether the people who made them, delivered them, packaged them to you are able to afford food for their children or not. Um, really basic things, whether or not you have access to fresh food and fresh vegetables and fresh fruits, whether you, how much plane tickets cost, like everyone out here trying to be travel boo, like (laughs) those are all highly, highly regulated industries, right? And so there's all sorts of ways. I mean, give me someone and describe their day and I could probably list off 25 different ways that they interacted with a state, local or federal government. How did you initially get involved with the Obama administration? What did you do there? So when I was in the Obama administration, I had a couple different jobs. I worked for Valerie Jarrett on the president side and did uh, in the Office of Public Engagement and did outreach around things like collective bargaining, Mm. uh, labor unions, expanding paid sick days, uh, increasing the minimum wage, 
sort of all those sort of economic working class issues. And then I, in the later years, worked for now President Biden, but when he was vice president, as his director of public engagement, so his version of Valerie Jarrett. But I got, if people know who that is, so basically all the external relationships. So when a president or a vice president goes out and says, you know, I'm a friend to X, Y, and Z community, there's a whole group of people in an office called public engagement that make sure that that's true. But I really, I got, I've always been obsessed with politics from the time I was really young. And it started because I asked my mom what government is. And she told me it's old white men sitting in a room deciding how free you are which is still the most succinct and accurate definition I have ever heard about what government is. And I was 11 and I, I mean, I remember it to this day, I remember where we were, we were in the car, wow. what car we were driving. And my mom's a social worker and she just sort of like rattled it off. And it fundamentally reoriented my understanding of the world because up until that point, I had been, I'd grown up in sort of a very white upper middle class suburb outside Columbus, Ohio. And everything I'd been taught was that we're America's the greatest and mm -hmm. is exceptional and is the land of the free and home of the brave and everyone's welcome and treated amazingly. And all you have to do is work hard and play by the rules and you'll get to the top. And um, my mother, who I trusted more than I trusted anyone, at, any teacher I had at school, told me this contradictory reality and it really kind of upended my worldview. And so I became obsessed. And so I was 16 and knew my mayor, my city council, and would write letters, and knew all my members of Congress, and would run into people at the grocery store and be like, hi. Um. <laughs> so yeah, I just became obsessed, and then started working on campaigns, and then eventually ended up at the White House. How about your dad's influence? What did he give to you? Yeah, so my dad is from Barbados, mm -hmm. so immigrated um, to America in the late 70s, and to me, I grew up in, a, up in a household with these two classic examples of American identities, right? Um, my mother is kind of a daughter of the American Revolution, the descendant of someone who signed the Declaration of Independence. And my father got kicked off the island of Barbados by his grandmother because she thought he was too smart for such a small island and he had to go to America and make his way in the world. A very classic immigrant tale. And those are both stories we tell about America as what exemplifies America and the best of America, the, the immigrant tale and the revolutionary tale. And, you know, I think my dad always brought a few things. One, a healthy skepticism mm. of the role of empire, right? Barbados was a British colony up until his teenage years. And so he had a really sharp critique and lived experience about what colonial oppression actually is and looks like, um, as well as an ability to see the really extraordinary things about America, too. Mm -hmm. You know, there are America is and has always been the best and the worst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are wow. things that happen here that can't happen other places. Mm -hmm. You have to acknowledge that. It's That's right. It's extraordinary. And this place can be the worst. It's right. just, it, it is both. Right. And it always has been. That is part of our fabric. You have the founders writing one of the most liberal documents of all time that they got from indigenous communities, to be clear, while owning other human beings. Like that contradiction is baked into our genesis. Mm. Um, and I think my dad helped me always see that and always keep that in contrast. And as a black man in America, living through a dark-skinned black man, like when I went to the grocery store or the school or interacted with police with my five foot two, blonde hair, blue-eyed, conventionally beautiful white mother versus my six foot three, dark-skinned, accented black father, the world was two fundamentally different places, mm -hmm. right? It, the world opened and laid itself at my feet when I was with my mother and the world contracted and closed and Bart protected itself from from us when I was with my father. And so that understanding of how differently the world can be based on who you're with and where you are is encapsulated in my father's, is embodied by my father's identity. Do you feel like that has inspired your life's work to make life more equal, more fair, more just. Do you feel that's the foundation of the work you do? Yes, I mean, without a doubt, I think I can't separate 
those experiences, those formative experiences from every, the way I approach anything, right? Mm. Um, that fundamental understanding and kind of deep reflexive knowledge that the world is really different for certain people mm. is an animating feature of my life and how I think about sort of everything. In your TED talk, you were talking about how we need to do the work in order to really see the ideals of America really take place for everybody, right? And you talked about work that we got to do. Three specific things. Can you tell us what they are? Oh, you know, I gave that talk a few years oh, yeah. ago. Wait, no, here, okay. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's actually also what we talked about MTV. So you talked about how we all have implicit bias. Yeah. How we have to change that. And then we have to give grace to people. Yes. So what is implicit bias? So... We are all a product of the things we hear, see, are raised to believe, are reflected back to us, the experiences that we have. We are, human beings are both, again, extraordinary, but also really limited and, and kind of fragile right. um, and, and reactionary thinkers in many ways. And so implicit bias is all of the information that we're constantly processing, we are all processing so much information throughout the arc of our lives, particularly in childhood. And when that information is the result of a system that is based on white supremacy and patriarchy, um, we get these hierarchies, right? We get that men are stronger, faster, smarter, calmer, more rational than women. We get mm. that white people are more reliable or attractive or capable than black people or Latin people or whoever. And so we start to believe that without even realizing it. And we move through the world analyzing the information, the experiences around us with this internal coding mm. that we may never have to use a racial slur. We may never have to, you know, actively try and harm someone else, but we might just, we are a product of the environment in which we're raised. And so we might just be like, oh, well, I'd maybe rather get a ride from or stay at this person's house or hire, you know, Tom over Laquan. Mm -hmm. Right. That is how and those even in those names are coded. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so so that is what implicit bias is. That was a really long answer about what implicit bias is. But it is basically the sort of subconscious reflection and expression mm -hmm. of a pejorative culture. So you talked about how we all have them. Right. Yeah. We all have them. And you did the Harvard implicit bias. Right. I did it. I was all right, man. But yeah. that's because you got to think I'm wiser today than sure. I was yesterday, a year ago, let, ago, let alone years ago, months or whatever. So I thought that was a really interesting test to take. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I hope I haven't taken it for a few years. I, when I Have gave you taken the, all the categories? I did. In the initial Ooh. the initial wow, time I did good. it. Yeah, I was really <laughs> dedicated. But I grew up, again, I grew up in this very white environment. I think there were maybe two other black kids, at the, and I think they were both biracial, also biracial, uh, in the town that I grew up in, very, like, one Mexican kid, a couple of Asians, but it was just a very white, white, white community in which I was almost never explicitly discriminated against mm. one or two times, but was unspokenly discriminate against a lot. Mm -hmm. And it took me, it even took me years to realize some of the harm that was done to me because it was done in such right. a polite way right. that I didn't realize how um, insidious it actually was. And so that really led me to understand how influenced I had been by this environment that I grew up in. And in that TED talk, I tell this really humiliating story that I still feel oh, like yeah, so yeah. much humiliation around. Oof. But I'd met a, I was at a party. It was like 18, 19. I was at a party on the campus of Ohio State and I met some dude and he's like this, you know, I think he was Peruvian. And I was like, what are you studying? And he's like, I'm um, like in my residency medical school. And I was like, a doctor? <laughs> oh, Carrie. I mean, how humiliating. Oh. But I was 18. I'd never met a Latino doctor. Mm -hmm. 
And that's because the environment that I grew up in, everyone was white. If he'd been black, it would've been like, cool. Like what kind of specialty, right? Cause I'd met tons of black doctors, I'd met tons of white doctors. So, you know, one of the things that actually happens a lot when we talk about race is we conflate it into a black and white issue. And it's not that simple, right? There are biases that are coded into all sorts of identities, mm -hmm. into every identity, um, whether it's LGBTQ people, whether it's Asian folks, whether it's Latin, like it's all, there's stereotypes that abound in every direction. And just because you might be good in one direction doesn't mean you're good in another direction. That's why we have work to do. Right. Mm -hmm. What are what are some things that like an individual can do to kind of combat their own implicit bias? Right. I mean, part of the trouble is that it, it, so much of it is actually uh, unconscious. Right? right. And so it has to needs a forum to come to the to the into your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of American law, we live in a relatively segregated society. Places like New York, not the case. But where I grew up in Ohio, there are distinct racial lines, right? Jewish, folk, Jewish folks live in Bexley. Black folks live in Berwick. You know, uh, white folks live, wasps live in Upper Arlington. And so you have to take yourself out of the community in which you are the racial majority or the religious majority and go to a different one and see what happens and mm. see all the things that you're probably full of and the assumptions that you're probably full of that you don't even know you, these opinions you don't even know that you have will really come to the surface when you put yourself in an environment when you are the minority or when you are feeling out of your depth, out of your comfort zone, out of your lane. Um, that's how you, you need a little friction to get some of this stuff to the mm -hmm. surface. And then once it gets to the surface, you can be like, oh, And okay. it's uncomfortable because again, mm -hmm. it's work and you have to, you got to just shred it apart. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work. And that's why, Katrina, you should do the Harvard implicit yeah. bias test. Just Google it and then you just take it. It's like a survey mm -hmm. and there's different categories that mm -hmm. you can click on and a bunch of questions that will determine what your bias is. Okay. Yeah. And you're supposed it, to go through it, it as I'll like quickly as you can, right? Yeah, like so you're supposed to make it. these assumptions because the answer is obvious. Like right, you give right. me a second. Right. The answer is obvious. It's supposed to elicit those like snap judgments right. of like safe, unsafe. Yeah. Like, oh God. Yeah. And it'd be like, and it's humiliating and we're all so full of shame and we want to be good people. And so you're like these opinions and beliefs mean that I'm a terrible person. So we avoid it. And it's just, none of that's true. We are all just the reflections of mm -hmm. the environment that we grew up in. And we need to take that out of like, it's if you know better and you still choose not to do better there right. it is. where you become a bad person. <laughs> there it is. But if you don't know, then you're, we're, you're just trying. You what know? about people who don't want to know? How do you view Ugh. that? I mean, I know. Okay, that's like, a loaded question. That's yeah. hard, but it's it's. I'll say it's disappointing. It is, and it's like, listen, I get it, right? Because again, it's uncomfortable. I hate knowing my flaws. Right. I hate knowing Ignorance that I knew better bliss. and yeah. didn't do better. I I I I have sympathy for the fact that it it's terrible, but it is actually what makes you a better person if you want to be a full participant in life and in the world around you and you want to be the person you claim to be, we all have to eat humble pie. It's just how it That's goes. Right. And even if you are like good on your racial bias stuff, like how are you to your friends? How are you to your partner? How are you to your kids? How are you to your mom? When she, for the 15th time, forgets to do X, Y, or Z, right? There's always an edge for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Katrina. That's Katrina. You know, like my mom. She always mom, gets mad at her mom. I was on the phone with my mom <laughs> and she's complaining about her mother. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> who does stuff my mom does. Or and it's so just great. like, sis. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and I was yeah. like, right. I was like, write this down. Tuck it into a pocket of a coat you think you'll have in 20 years to remind you that you were complaining about this because you're going to do this exact thing to me, Ooh. you know? And it's just like, we all have growth edges that we can find yeah. in our relationships. Being a human being is hard. Interacting with another human being is hard. Yeah. You know? So politics obviously being very important for you. When you get into a relationship, do you bring t politics up? And does someone have to be on the same level engage in politics? Is it a turnoff if they're not? I've sort of done it both ways. I'm not someone who loves talking about my work 
after I'm done working. Right. Okay. So I sur- so you know, I'm really happy to talk about like domestic stuff and what are we going to eat and like what movie are we watching and blah 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 as opposed to rehashing my day. It was much more pronounced when I was in the White House. Like mm-hmm. I definitely didn't want to talk about it. So like I just left. I've been there for 14 hours. I think about it all every moment of the day. Right. I need space. Now that I'm in it less directly, I'm yeah. more sort of interested in talking about it, but it really depends on with who. There's a lot of people who are like, well, I read the newspaper and blah, 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 blah. It's like, listen, you don't get to read the newspaper and tell a surgeon how to perform (laughs) surgery. Like politics is a profession and I get it. Like you are, we are all affected by it. Everyone can participate, but being a participant and being a professional are still really different, right? Like I don't play flag football and then tell a football player like well what you're gonna want to do right like that would be even if you're a spectator even it if would you be love nuts. it from afar it's different it's just different if you're you're not in it it's so different and so it's it's tough and it's yeah. sort of like it really depends on who they are and it has and, it, and also I have found that the more expert two people are in the same thing the less they talk about it mm. because there's a lot that goes unsaid so that doesn't need to be said, right? right? So it. when you think about when you meet someone who grew up similarly to you, yeah. it's like, I don't need to explain to you what my, my mama's house is like because yeah. yours was the exact same, right? <laughs> like, why would we talk about that? Right. And it's sort of the same thing in career. It's like, if someone in, has a, an equal amount or more expertise than I do, it's like, you don't need to explain to me that this is actually a cause of that and what's happening now. It's just like, yeah, no, I'm with you. Is it possible for someone to be working in the White House early in their career and be in a relationship? Were you able to split your life or were you just so consumed working there? I was. I love a relationship. I really do. So I've always sort of had people that I've been in love with. I wouldn't say that I succeeded. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, we are no longer uh, dating. The guy I was dating when I I worked at the White House, but I tried. (laughs) I sure tried, but it's just hard. And it was even, it was less even the hours because he had a really demanding job at the time. And when you're, you know, we didn't have kids. So it's not like it was that big of a deal if I was out um, for a long day. But what I really experienced is that to do the work at that level, mm-hmm. you have to be really disassociated from your emotions, right? It's That's like right. this cold clinical analysis of what yes. you should do. And when you spend the majority of your waking hours in that mode, right. it becomes really hard for that not to be your default mode. Every and time. so I bring that to a relationship and it's like, who wants to date that person when I'm like well I you know yeah and so every boyfriend I've ever had is like oh oh work Carrie oh there she goes like my voice changes my body I love work Carrie by the way thank you I think work Carrie's amazing yeah but when someone's telling you their feelings and you're like well I mean clearly that isn't what happens Uh, solve it so I need you to like take it down like that's not constructive to a loving home environment Was was working at the White House like Scandal? Did you ever watch Scandal? It wasn't. It was like, <laughs> it wasn't. It was some combination of Veep and West Wing. Like it's somewhere in between those two. So not as fun as Scandal. No, I wish. <laughs> was there well, as much wine? But, oh, yeah, as much wine. as much wine, but not as much intrigue. Anything bizarre that happened there, or anybody that you saw, it was unexpected. It was constantly that way. Ooh. I mean. I don't like you're walking through the halls and there's Benjamin Netanyahu and you're like you hear this voice and you're like why do I who is that I know that voice and you're like Netanyahu and he's like a giant he's like six six or I remember coming out of the vice president's office one day and Elizabeth Holmes was there like now soon to be incarcerated potentially anyone that you were fanning out for. Um, Anna DeVere Smith was there once and I was like, oh my God, hi, Tony Morrison. Came. Were you allowed to say hi to guests or was it, is it like, like an unspoken rule? Leave the guests alone. It sort of depends. You take, I mean, there, you have to remember we're there at a time when two of the biggest celebrities in the world live there. Right. <laughs> right. So there's so few people who came that were more famous than the Obamas. Mm-hmm. And with that, and you're in this build, like you're in the White House. Like right. You, and so they often, there's a couple people who didn't, I will not spill the tea publicly, <laughs> but the vast majority of people who come there are so in awe 
especially of the fact that there is a black president, right? That they are geeking out. So <laughs> they're excited to meet you. Like I remember Rihanna came and she was just like, she was like a little kid. She was just so excited. She was like, I can't believe I'm like, this is so wild. And you're just like, this is wild for you. So it's this crazy <laughs> distortion because it's this hollowed kind of place and right. this place of such intense significance. And you're around the Obama, so you're trying to be cool. So you are allowed to say hi if it's appropriate, but okay. like you're, you're, you're at your job, right? right. And your bosses yeah. are around. And it's like, you don't want to embarrass anybody. So you can't like <laughs> pop into a meeting that hey. you're not invited to and be like, hi, I just wanted to take a picture. Yeah. Like, you can't do absolutely that. Absolutely not acceptable. Do you think that the White House is all bugged? Like we hear all these things like, oh, the White House is bugged. It's all these, there's secret doors behind paintings. There's, I don't know. I've, have you been in the West Wing? I have not been there at all. I've not been Listen, there at all. So we are living through you right yeah. now because you're being honest with us. The East Wing is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. The West Wing is like so rinky dink. It's such a joke. <laughs> like there's mice. You got like five oh, people me? to an office. It is, everyone's tired, exhausted, over caffeinated. Like it's just so not a glamorous thing. And then the, and then like the Roosevelt Room and the Oval Office are extraordinary. But so, so. <laughs> It's wow. it really is like a very high low scenario. High low. <laughs> yeah. High highbrow, lowbrow scenario there, to be sure. You think about how large the intelligence apparatus of America is. It's yeah. like who would even bug the White House? Because then there would be one division who would be mad and like would then find out and then right. they would want to bug. You know what I mean? So I actually probably don't think so. Yeah. I'm sure there have been attempts over the years that you know, did you believe that? Well, do you believe aliens exist? Yeah. Was there any talk about aliens when you were in the White House? Not that I was a part of, but they wouldn't bring the girl who's like working on minimum wage <laughs> and talk about aliens. <laughs> How do you like restrain yourself from eavesdropping? You don't. I would have been like, you don't. <laughs> but again, it's just like you can't loiter. Like, yeah, so yeah, everyone, yeah. cause there's, it's the most heavily guarded building in the world, yeah. right? Like there's guards everywhere. And they're yeah. just like, what are you doing yeah. here? <laughs> like, ma'am, <laughs> go back to like, don't you go have a job? Right Take up. this seriously, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, you're always, I mean, my, con my curiosity was constantly oh, like yeah. at oh, a man. 10, you know? And then you very quickly realize how. Um, at least I did. I'm sure other people had different reactions, but I'm just like, I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am. <laughs> Cause you go into some meetings and the way like people are just quoting things oh, yeah. and synthesizing information. They know this and that. And you're just like, uh-huh. Yeah. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> just like Google. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like so embarrassing, you know, <laughs> how was it seeing Biden then and now seeing him as the president? Having worked for him as his son passed, um, mm. having worked for him as the only example I think I've ever seen of watching a then 70 something white man joyfully work for a black man 30 years younger than him or 20 years younger than him and like always take a second seat. He inspires such profound loyalty and, um, shows such extraordinary humanity and grace that as a individual and, and people can and should disagree with their president, people can and should question and critique right. their president, but on a human level, like he's such an extraordinary human being. And um, I have real affection for him as a human. Mm -hmm. Even in private, he would defend the president. I remember we were at a meeting and someone came in and was trying to like get him on their side against president. Obama and he was like uh, uh like not here never not me mm. never ever talk about him like that in front of me and I, I just there are just precious few examples that we have in this country that is plagued by racism where you watched a man that wanted to be president watch have see a black man again 20 years his junior or whatever their age gap is have the job he wants and be like, that's my dude, that's my dog. Mm -hmm. Like I have his back in private and in public. 
And I think that's why black voters in South Carolina and across the South and across the country, particularly if you're over 50, none of us have seen anything like that. We don't have, I, anyone can point, tell me another example. And I think that's why he inspires such loyalty and gets such high support amongst black voters because we're just like that dude, who else would have worked for Barack Obama and been like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. Mm -hmm. Like I'll be number two. Look at this. This is history. Right. And been so happy about it. I don't know. What's interesting to me about Joe Biden also is that he's so much smarter than you think he is, which I realize seems nuts, but it's like, he doesn't care about whether or not you know he's smarter than you, mm. you know? It's not what animates him as a person. He cares if you're comfortable, if you're happy. Do you feel like loved and appreciated and welcomed? He's like a host in that regard. Um, and the intellectual stuff doesn't matter to him as much, but he is so smart and has such um, sophisticated knowledge and detailed knowledge of sort of everything that comes across his plate that was always really startling to me it's like Barack Obama Bill Clinton these dudes are known as being these intellectual powerhouses and they lead with that and it's a big part of their personality and how they show up in the world and I'd say Joe Biden is like on that level of intellectual heft but just isn't it's not where his value system is are you able to still share your thoughts or opinions with the Biden administration in any capacity? I mean, yes and no. I have a lot of friends that work there and yeah. it's sort of like, you have to be really judicious about, about how you want to right. share, right? Because part of the reality is they have access to more information than I do. Oftentimes, I have very distinct memories of people coming up to me and be like, you know what you should do? <laughs> and it's just like, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think I didn't think of that? Yeah. Thank you Thank for you. bringing me yeah. the most basic solution <laughs> to a problem you do not even come close to understanding. Right. But I appreciate it, Auntie. You right. know what I mean? You're just like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. A, you don't have all the facts. You don't have all the information. You don't understand the ways in which we are constrained, the other promises we've made, the other things we're trying to do that could affect this. Like, it's really, really tough. So I would probably only attempt to really lobby for something to happen if I were really clear that I was tight on the facts, if I was directly sort yeah. of in the mix, because every problem that they're confronting is infinitely more complex than it looks like from the outside. Yeah. Do you think he just has to deal with more when it comes to media and that he deals more with backlash or anything like that than, well, I don't want to say previous presidents because we know what president obama went through but do you feel the media is unfair to this administration and the work they're doing um or is it more their messaging of the work that they're doing i think it's both i don't know that it, it, that's ever a one-way answer right. i think media has changed so much like how the, what do you mean well i think the 2008 presidential campaign oh, barack yeah. obama sent one tweet Right. One. One. <laughs> like, please vote today. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Twitter didn't really, wasn't really right. a thing, right? Yeah. And and now you look at the world that we live in. So you're on Instagram live. You know what I mean? So it just, it changed. It really, really changed. And I think in the post-Trump world, traditional legacy media is still figuring out how to cover things. I think at the same time, sort of this the facade of journalistic objectivity has crumbled away, oh, you know? Gone. And so I think media is figuring itself out and trying to figure out how to do it. I think every administration is also figuring out how they interact in a way to get their message out. The world is so fractured. Oh, to yeah. build an audience is really, really difficult. Um, you go back to a time 20 years ago, like 75 million people would watch one, the same TV show at Crazy. the same time. Right. Crazy. And now it's like a big night is 3 million. If and that. this country's huge. Right. Right. This country's 300, nearly 350 million people. So I think it's both. I think the I think administrations have really struggled to get clear and concise messaging out, which is always a struggle because there's so much going on but also media has fundamentally changed and how you actually service 
something as complex as the government of the third largest country in the world when you barely have any attention or resources is yeah. challenging. Working at the White House, dealing with politics, this is your profession, right? This is what you do. Do you hate politics now after all this or do you still love it? I mean, listen, politics is a human enterprise and I love people. And right. so I will always love politics because politics is just people, just people trying to do stuff, trying to tell stories, trying to make the world in remake the world in their vision. Right. Um, and so I think there are all sorts of choices that we make that I disagree with. And mm -hmm. yet at its core, it is about people trying to do something. And I will always think that that's interesting. My, my line since leaving the White House years ago has been that I wouldn't go back unless it was one of my peers who was president. Ooh. You know, I have a bunch of friends that'll run for president, you know? And so I would go back to work with, work, work with, I mean, <laughs> my, uh, yeah, excuse me, work for right. um, one of them. <laughs> That's part of the reason that she can't go back. Right. Um, it's so hard and it's, it's a lifestyle that's incompatible with the life I'm trying to live right now, you know? The life that you're trying to live right now, you have ventured off more into the media world and the entertainment business. You co-founded your company, Culture House, which has produced great stories that you've shared with the world. Tell us about Culture House, how did it come about? What does it represent and why is it important? Okay. So, you know, to tie the two together, when I was at the White House, people, everywhere I'd go, no matter where I was in the world, people <laughs> would be like, but, you know, Obama's not really doing anything, is he? It's just like, oh my God, we are jumping off burning buildings, we're doing somersaults, we're like shimmying across it, we're doing everything we can possibly think of to get people to pay attention to what we're doing. We're holding press conferences, we're in the newspaper every single day, we're on the front page. We are bringing in YouTube influencers, we are, you know, Barack Obama's doing between two ferns, <laughs> like we yeah. are doing everything we possibly can to get the message out about what we are working on and yet people aren't paying attention. And so despite the fact that I was really working in more of a, like an economic sector, I was starting to formulate this analysis that our pop culture and our political life were mm -hmm. just so far apart. And so how do you work to kind of close that delta, close the difference, close the space between the two of them? And I was sort of kicking around that idea as I left the White House in the spring of 2016, assuming Hillary Clinton was going to be president and sort of just being like, my time here is done. I'm going to move to New York and try and figure out how to bring the eyeballs that are all going to pop culture more into the political space. And then we elect a television star president. Boom. And it was like, all right, so I guess we're taking this seriously. I guess I really do have to figure this out. And to me, there's a there's an unbroken line between John Wayne and Donald Trump. Mm. If you're going to sit 10 generations of Americans or four generations of Americans in front of stories that it doesn't matter if you pay attention to the rules, don't look about how someone's doing it. Just just pay attention to the results. Justice in and uh, methods are an individual choice. And at the end of the day, you lionize, you hear, you you consider the hero to be the John Wayne figure who just does whatever he wants. And then that guy saunters onto a podium. People are like, I know him. I love him. Mm. Great. And he's the boss. And he's made all this money. Right. And he, blah, 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 blah. He's a businessman. So that reality um, was really kind of forming how the work that I wanted to do next and which I still very much consider an extension of the work that I was doing in the White House oh, and that yeah. I was doing on campaigns. Right. I happened, I was consulting for a bunch of media companies and met, got set up on a friend date with my now business partner, Rachel Najan, and she's a longtime filmmaker, had her own production company for a while. She'd run a bunch of divisions at Viacom um, for years and then was out on her own and she and I met and started sort of just talking about projects that we find interesting and why and how and ended up putting together a pitch for a show and then sold that show out of that started our own company in 2018 so beautiful I love with, this yeah with another partner um, Nicole 
And that show that we talked about on our very first friend date is Ladies First, which is out on Netflix right now. Congratulations, by the way, the the Critics' Choice Award. Congratulations. Nomination. Nomination for Critics' Choice Awards. We're so excited. Um, So it's been a really full circle project. But that show is about scarcity. That show is the way that we set up lives um, centered on scarcity for women, particularly women of color. And we're using hip hop to access that, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's paying attention to all the stars of hip hop. We're all, it's That's our right. cultural touch point. It's our zeitgeist. And how do you have that conversation in a way that actually connects it to the lived experience of women, such as like wage gaps and mm. not getting hired for things, not having workplace protections, all of which these women are going through. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, just make it, but but make it entertainment. We're one of the only black, brown, women-owned production companies that runs production services in the country. Wow. That's great. Which is sad, but also cool, I guess. Right. <laughs> I know it's always such a, it's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, when someone says it to you as a compliment, you're just like, well, thank you for recognizing that, but I wish there was more. Right, right. Ugh. Ladies first. Okay, so Katrina and I were looking up on it. What was the whole situation? People were talking about why Missy Elliott wasn't, or the music wasn't in it or something like that. What was that whole? They weren't in the trailer. Missy and Nikki, Twitter was mad about it. Oh, Twitter, people on Twitter, I mean, well, they got mad at us in the trailer because Nikki wasn't in the trailer, I think. But she's in the series throughout. Like, we give her so many props. But I don't know. It's sort of like... Right. I mean, yeah. The amount you have to pay to license footage, license tracks, like those things are not free. They are extraordinarily expensive. And sometimes you have to make editorial and creative choices that like you can't. Twitter just loves being mad. Right. And it's like a bunch (laughs) of people who don't know the choices that we had to make. And I think if they were in our position would have made the same choices and it's like, I love the fandom for Nikki. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was one of those, just wait till it comes out. Like, I promise you, we give her her I mean, props. listen, Nikki's we one of the greatest. Her legend, yeah. legendary status. Right. And so there, and there's also a lot of people that we asked repeatedly and begged and cajoled and pleaded to be a part of it that didn't want to be. Yeah. Which is also fine, too. And so anyone who is not present, it's yeah. not because we didn't ask. Yeah. Um, but we're living at a time when, you know, yeah. people are selling their own independent docs and right. making their own story and they have their social media. They don't need to participate in docs the way they did 15 years ago because that's how their fans would see them, right? And so I don't begrudge anyone for making the right choice for them about what projects they want to be a part of or which right. ones they don't. I'm so glad you said that because it, it's nothing personal. Yeah. It was like, there's probably a budget. It's expensive to license. Yeah. And that's pretty much how this game works. But, you know, I think you being in the industry and really working behind the scenes now, what are you most surprised about when it comes to this space? That you were just like, wow, I had no idea. And if people knew more about it, they would have more of an understanding of different projects that they see. Yeah, I think I'm most surprised by how regressive Ooh. the entertainment industry is. It has this reputation as being like a liberal progressive place. And that's probably true on the individual level. But Mm -hmm. when it comes to what projects get greenlit, that Mm -hmm. is not true. The projects that get made are often really bad for you. They're bad for our mental health. They're bad for our social health. And I would argue should not be made. They mm-hmm. skew beauty standards. They make little girls feel horrible about themselves. They make boys feel completely invisible or pigeonholed into one way of existing. And part of that is because, you know, we have yet to sort of up, we have not offered, offered as many alternatives. So all the data still just confirms, talk about bias, confirmation bias is like, it becomes this self-confirming prophecy. It's mm. like, well, this is really popular. It's like, yeah, but you, no one was given a choice and be, and hasn't been given a choice for right. 25 years. And therefore, this is what we know. This is what's familiar to us. And human beings are pattern monsters. We love a pattern. Right. <laughs> we love to do the same thing over and over and over again. And it's funny. We all think we're like these independent little snowflakes. And yet, like you're exactly like your mother. You know what right. I mean? It's just like, we're not nearly as independent minded or unique as we like to think we are. 
And so unless you actually train an audience to watch something else, right? they're never going to know what they actually want. And you see it in music. You see it in all sorts of creative forms. I didn't pay much to, t- I didn't watch much TV or many movies during my White House years. So I have like this 10 year gap of pop culture that I've had to backfill. And a lot of that coincided with the reality era and like that whole sort of change, which became quite salacious and I think especially harmful. And um, yeah, and so that was really surprising to me. I was just sort of like, okay, so you want the lowest common, you want the most sort of baseline uh, version of this and you don't actually want to tell stories that could change the dynamics of, that would be better for people. Mm. Um, So I think that was really surprising. You know, on an individual from an audience perspective, my my eye twitches a little whenever I hear anybody talking about hate watching something. It's just like, everything is data. Do not watch it. (laughs) Just do not watch it. Mm. Every single view something gets, gets monetized and told that that's what's popular. And it's like, you have to, in the same way that you wouldn't buy something from a sweatshop, do not watch television that is bad for other people. I don't care if it's entertaining. I don't care if it feels mindless. I understand we all want to eat fast food 20 times, maybe not, but like it's the same thing. It's actually, it's causing actual damage. A lot of these shows Mm -hmm. are causing actual damage and every one of us that watches them and participates in them reinforces the market for them. Mm. How do you challenge those as your, uh, with your, with your company, how do you challenge those barriers when right. try, when trying to get projects greenlit that they're like, well, there's no data for that. Yeah. Or it's not what the audience not wants. Not what the audience wants. Like, how do you, cha- yeah, how how do do you work on challenging that? that? Yeah. I mean, we have to be very aggressive, mm-hmm. you know, and part of that is the luck that we've had in getting really high level talent to be a part of our shows. Mm-hmm. If Oprah sees the vision, so we did the show called The Hair Tales and mm-hmm. Oprah was like, not only will I buy this, I'm going to be in it, I'm going to executive produce it, and wow. I'm going to help ensure you get a green light for it at Hulu. Um, and Okay with the flex. Right? I mean, it was, the most, it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. And there was a black executive at Hulu, Tara Duncan, at the Onyx Collective, who was able to really usher that project through as well. Um, but when you have these sort of established entities, not to mention Tracy Ells Ross, when you have these established entities that can bring all this kind of social capital and audience capital to bear on projects that helps a lot. And that's an unfortunate reality, but it is the reality and we'll sort of use any tool in our, any arrow in our quiver to make it happen. But even as we were pitching that project, an an exec in- Oh no. An exec in one of the pitches (sighs) was like, so hair is a thing for black women? And he's like, I've never heard that. I'll ask my wife. Interesting. She might know. And then what do you to say? <laughs> like, how do you reply to, to our that? face? So how do you reply and it was to just, that? Well, and it was one of those things. Say, like, what, how was your facial expression? <laughs> like, I was just sort of like, I, I don't even think he knows what he's saying, right? Because what he was actually saying was, one, I've never spent any time with black women, <laughs> any meaningful time with black women in my life, that in his 50s, he does not know that hair is in any way uh, like a foundation of black culture. And two, that he doesn't consider it his responsibility to know that because he immediately outsourced mm-hmm. it to his wife, mm-hmm. right? So like, not only do I not know, and nor have I given any real curiosity to black women, but I also don't consider it something that I need to do now. I still don't consider it something I need to do, but my wife will do it. And if she hasn't done it, then like, so be it. And I don't think, you know, and to him, he's just like, huh, okay, cool. Fascinating, right? And to him, he's being a great guy. He's being open. He's giving it consideration. To us, we're just like, my guy, (laughs) like, what are you talking about? Um, But that happens a lot, right? Someone, an exec, when we were pitching Ladies First was like, yeah, I just don't know if we could own the hip hopper story, though, with this project. I was like, I, there's so many problems with that sentence. Own and hip hoppers? Like, the <laughs> Wait, level. These are people who are in charge of green lighting what gets made and what gets put oh on television. God. Okay. So, <laughs> after 
Okay, so let's rewind a little bit because I, you know, hearing these stories and, you know, we have been um, programmed to think things have gotten better, right? That there's more, you know, inclusion and all these decision making, the workplace is more diverse, there's more, especially when it comes to green lighting things, there's more understanding things have changed, especially in 2020, all these companies, we saw it, right? Posting how they're going to make an effort to do better when it comes, especially in the space that, you know, media, really every, every I feel company, like company. Opening up DEI, hires, mm-hmm, everything. Mm-hmm. Across the, I want to say every kind of workplace, every right? It wasn't just like in the music and no, no, film, no. entertainment industry. Everywhere, I tech, mean, everywhere. I'm sure tire companies, yes. like I think everybody was posting how they're going to do better to be more inclusive and more, you know, to, to change representation and their management team and all these things were going to change. Has it changed, in your opinion, now that you're working on this side of the industry? And we know that there's a lot of budget cuts happening right now. There's a lot of layoffs. And if you look at it, a lot of these companies are cutting the budget from all the DEI hires that they pledged in 2020, 2020, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where the, the layoffs are happening from primarily. I'm not saying like other departments aren't getting hit as well, but particularly this goes first. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this? What are your thoughts on this? Are we just reading articles? Are we being biased right now because, you know, of what we're exposed to, what we're reading? And that's the consensus at this yeah. point. It's a good question. Uh, it has gotten better in some respects, right? Mm-hmm. But there being 25 new black executives in TV and film in L.A. is great and 25 people don't change one of the largest industries in the world (laughs) you know like there's really only so much that any individual can do or 25 individuals can do to change the entertainment landscape right on top of that there's this next layer of hyper consolidation that we're seeing Mm. amongst these mergers and acquisitions right so discovery buying HBO, Time mm-hmm. Warner, um, from AT&T and creating sort of that those that sort of business mergers and acquisitions collapsing of companies and industries mean that a lot of people get laid off. So that's one issue. And, and functioning within these massive conglomerate co- corporations is really difficult. So again, you have one individual. Great. You hired a black executive. They are one of, they've, 3,000 bosses, right? Like they are part Oof. of this broader, like, okay, so I'm at this position in Disney or I'm at this position in Discovery, but they are one small portion of this massive landscape. And so to be fair to them, it is great that they're there and they are doing things and they are able to get projects through. And they are and have been a sliver of what, the overall industry is. Um, and so, so there's that reality. And then also, I think, as we well know, there's always a backlash, right? I think this one's coming a little bit faster than perhaps we anticipated it would. Mm-hmm. But anytime there has been a meaningful advancement of rights, access, and opportunity to non, you know, to black folks, to people of color, to historically marginalized communities, there is a backlash to that. Always, always, always. Every single time in history, every single time in this country's history, there is always a backlash. I contend that we are in that backlash to George Floyd. We're at the very beginning of it. The very beginning? Yeah. Oh, I think we're at the very, very beginning. So how do we hold these companies like accountable for the things that they've pledged Deal with this backlash? yeah. Yeah, because, right, you see all these articles about the DE&I folks getting laid off. Right. Anything else? Any outrage? No. Mm-mm. Crickets, right? And so I think when you read the news, there is a critique being leveled against all manner of public figures that are non-white that would not have been published two years ago, but feel like fair game now. What do you mean by that? I think that there have been a handful of I don't like sort of want to name them or, or just like just an because, example, just so like, like I've read a few articles, like profiles in the New Yorker or oh, okay. New York times or Washington post or whatever. 
that level these like art reviews or film reviews or whatever that level a critique of a black artist that feels mm. exceedingly harsh mm -hmm. and unfair and like some pent up bitterness of what a white critic has wanted to say, but hasn't felt like they would be allowed to say, but now they feel like they can. And I've seen that a handful of times and that's part of what makes me think that we're in a backlash is that there's an opening in the public sphere for a critique be to, to be leveled against. And don't get me wrong, I don't think black people are, should be immune from critique. I don't think that that's true. Um, but I think starting with the Black Lives Matter organizational backlash, like I think we're just in an era where we can expect a lot of things, a lot of advancements to be rolled back and to be rolled Ooh. back without um, outrage or critique. And I think we as emerging creators or, or um, established creators who have perhaps been given a lot of celebratory and laud laudatory column space mm -hmm. or public space over the course of the last few years, I think that's going to start to evaporate as well. How long is this backlash going to... I don't really know. Oof. I like how I think like, it really tells Carrie how. I know. This, does, like, this, I, does, this sounds very... I, I think the Trump I think the Trump campaign will be a big part of it. I think I think we'll be able to know more once we find out if they're really going to nominate this man mm -hmm. and then how close that campaign is. I think we'll have a really clear understanding of where we are. Mm -hmm. um, for better or for worse, elections are extraordinary temperature takers mm -hmm. and um and like kind of like location markers about where you are in a spectrum of yeah uh, progress or regress, you know. Mm. What stories do you want to tell? Like your dream story, Culture House presents, boom, what would it be? For me, my personal dream story is, is like 10 stories about reparations. Mm, 10 stories. I think the reparatory justice movement is the most critical movement of our time mm -hmm. and that without addressing it, we will not address climate change, which is the other existential movement of our time. I think until we have meaningful redress for what colonization and what enslavement mm -hmm. did to people around the world, countries and nations like Brazil mm -hmm. and Nigeria and to a certain extent, China and others will have a very justified middle finger when we ask them to make climate adjustments. <laughs> They'll be mm. like, wait a second. So if I'm and if I'm Prime Minister Modi in India and the Brits are trying to get me to stop burning coal, I'm like, wait a second. So you came here and you burned our factories and our textile mm. industry to the ground, mm -hmm. forced our people to then import British textiles and keeping up to keep us in abject poverty for a century of colonization while extracting all Ooh. of our natural resources, all of our human capital, all of our intellectual and artistic capital. And now you want, now our economy is just beginning to gain some steam. You want me to completely upend it? Go for yourself. I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this. Yes. I'm sorry. Um, no, I mean, it's such, you know, when you say that it, and you think it through, these are real big heavy, serious conversations. Yeah. Same in Brazil, same in Mexico, same, I mean, same across the world. The idea that we're gonna solve climate without meaningful uh, infusions of capital into these countries, and you know, we'll give a Marshall Plan to Europe post-World War II, but like not to anywhere mm -hmm. that was, anyway. So those are stories that I love. Um, and then, you know, I think that there's, I mean, there's so many other things that Culture House loves. We really try and tell stories that do three things. Like one, center experiences that haven't been centered in dominant pop culture to tell futuristic stories, which mm. isn't just about, you know, spaceships and, and lasers, but is about like, what's the next iteration of a conversation we're trying to have. We've been talking about race. We've been talking about gender. We've been talking about, um, all sorts of identity for 
largely in the same way for a couple generations, and it's like time to advance how we talk about those things, um, I would say. And so that's really interesting. Like, what's the take on being interracial or biracial that I haven't heard? Mm-hmm. You know, this is something I've been thinking about my whole life. Like, how are 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds who are now living on a spectrum of identity? Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a one-drop kind of life, and so I've never considered myself anything other than black. You talk to biracial or multiracial kids now, and they're just like, how antiquated? You chose one? Like, that doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> like, I, I'm my mother and my father. Like, today I'm very Thai, and tomorrow I'm going to be very, you know... And I think that's extraordinary. We've put gender on a spectrum. We've put uh, sexuality on a spectrum. I'm really excited for us to put racial and ident- ethnicity on the spectrum mm-hmm. because it's true, right? And we shouldn't be living in this siloed way. But we don't have pop culture that reflects that yet. And so where is that coming from? And that will be in the form of like reality shows and family shows and blah, 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 but with a different set of values. I, w- I can't wait for like the family follow doc reality show that isn't harmful. Mm. Well, you're going to probably be <laughs> behind all of these you know? great stories that need to be shared because I think it's just going to help us all be better. Mm-hmm. Someone who lives somewhere far away who might not have the exposure to, you know, different people, different walks of life, they can watch a show that is not the same as their environment and learn from it, right? And I think that's really important with where we, I hope, where we want to be thriving, healthy, happy, collectively. So I am so proud of the work that you do. Selfishly, I'm glad you're a little bit away from politics because I know it's really exhausting and takes a toll on you. At the same time, thank you for everything you've done that you Mm. continue to do. However way we can support your work, we're here for you. And congratulations again on Culture House and all the amazing stories that you guys are fighting for and bringing to life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.